Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, today it is my great pleasure to welcome Nathan Laurier to the show. Welcome, Nathan. Thanks, Jeremy. Good to be here. Nathan is a commercial director at Gartner CEB, where he's been for nearly eight years. Uh, Gartner is a research and advisory firm focused on helping teams achieve their most critical priorities. I actually, by way of full disclosure, worked for Gartner for 16 years, although Nathan and I did not overlap. But we're going to talk a range of topics in sales, starting with the role of AI in sales and what parts of the sales process can get automated. But we'll talk about a whole range of other things as we usually do. Before we get there, Nathan, I'd love to get to know our guests. So it sounds like you and I are both book lovers. I'm curious, what's your favorite sales book of all time? Yeah, that's a really, really hard question, Jeremy, and a good one to buy. So there are, there are a few that stand out. The one that I would say has had the biggest influence on how I see my job and, and how I see, I would say the customer more specifically, is the Challenger sale. Uh, the original book from from 2008. Up to that point, I, I'd been a sales professional. I'd always been taught that being a good professional was about building relationships, asking questions, being responsive to client need. And while I understood where that came from, it always felt to me like something was missing in either the conversations I was involved in where I was trying to adopt that approach or conversations that I witnessed. And reading the challenge cell and understanding that actually leading with a perspective, leading with a point of view, actually pushing the customer's thinking was part of the value you could deliver as a salesperson was really quite revolutionary for me. So I have to say it's had a huge influence in the way I think about sales, the way I think about the customer, the way I think about leadership and the way I think about coaching my team. So yeah, it's uh, it's, it's challenging all the way for me, Jeremy. Yeah, we it's been a little while since someone mentioned Challenger Sale, though it's a very, very popular book. I'm also a huge fan of the Challenger Customer, which has a lot of how-to and I think is a, is a fantastic follow-on to that book. One conclusion I can't come to over the years, I think there's a false dichotomy between consultative selling and challenger selling. I think it's an it's an and that you have, need to flex to the situation. And, and there's some degree of discovery of existing challenges that need to get solved. But there's also some uh, ideation and recommendation and exploration of the teach, tailor, take control, right? Uh, there's there's some facets of of the challenger approach, just depending on context. Do you think, is that an accurate statement? Yes, it is. I think if you go back to the original book, the premise of it is if you put 100 salespeople in a room and they can only sell in one way, which way would be most effective? And I think the the data and the research at that time and still today, to a degree, indicated it was challenger. But I think in practice, if you're an individual sales rep, Challenger is a tool that you have in your box that you can bring out and deploy at certain times in certain situations with certain customers. So I agree. I think a lot of these methodologies, to some extent, do bleed into each other. And there may be aspects of different methodologies you can deploy at different times. But I do think on balance, Challenger is maybe the most effective tool I've seen used in conversations, particularly with executives who just don't necessarily see that they need to change. If you had to pick the one piece of challenger that you thought was, you could only teach one thing, right? You got a hundred people. I love your thing. You got a hundred people in a room and you can only teach them one thing about challenger and you've got, I don't know, five minutes to do it. What's the one thing you would teach them? Have a point of view in your customer's business and share it with them and be bold in sharing it with them have an idea of where it comes from, why that point of view is your point of view, 
I'm going to go in with having done some research, having understood your business, which most people would say is sales 101. The next step then is to say, I would imagine based on what I've read, based on other companies that I work with who are just like you, some of the issues you may be experiencing are X and some of the reasons behind it are Y. And here are some additional reasons that other people have cited that might be causing the issue in your business as well. In my opinion, that's a far more effective way to sell, but it's also a lot more fun. So in terms of learning those things that are the hyper-commercial interests, the hypotheses, what are some other things that you and your team do in order to understand what's really going on with your prospects and customers' businesses? Annual reports, YouTube, I think, is actually, even though it's not necessarily a business platform, it's a very interesting platform for interviews and uh, to get insight into the customer's organization, interviews in the business press. I think maybe the main differentiator that I I see in terms of how I coach and teach individuals is when you are doing your research, you're looking for two things. You're looking for what's important to them and what they want to achieve, obviously. But the second thing I think you're looking for is where are the points of disruption? And that's where that challenger lens starts to come in. So it's what do I think they're doing that maybe isn't the whole answer or they could be doing or thinking about differently. When you're doing your preparation, Think about it with a critical lens and think about it in terms of, okay, most companies that we sell to are trying to achieve similar things in similar ways. Based on what I know in my experience, because I sell and speak to more of these C-level executives and companies than my prospects do, what do they typically miss, underappreciate, get wrong? Having that as a layer, uh, Jeremy, through your preparation, I think adds um, some additional weight and ultimately differentiates you as a salesperson. Way, way, way back when, back in my time at Gartner, before before your time, we did a study and we hired a, a major management consulting company to go through basically the profiles, right, LinkedIn profiles and uh, resumes and so on of of everyone who sold at Gartner and tried to classify everything, right? I mean, they they sort of biotagged everything that was ethical, right? To you couldn't do, you know, race, gender, disability status, right? All the protected stuff was obviously not part of that but like where you went to school and what you studied and so on. And it was fascinating that at the end of all of that, they concluded that um, it wasn't really possible to determine from bio data whether or not somebody would be, because um, they classify people into, you know, we knew quota attainment, so top sellers versus, you know, unsuccessful sellers. And it turned out it wasn't possible, but where the conclusion of that report, which was more, you know, more qualitative in nature. What about, I'm, I'm curious, you know, about some of these other traits like curiosity how do you assess curiosity in a candidate? I, I find that to be very, on the surface, you know, you might think easy, but I think there could be a big mismatch between the way people behave during an interview and then the way they ultimately operate as employees. Yeah, there is. And look, full disclosure, hiring is the aspect of it I find most difficult. There is often a mismatch between the way individuals present in an interview versus how they are in the job. Curiosity, though, is something that I've tended to really dig into maybe more so than any of the other traditional traits that you and I have been speaking about. And the way that I would assess it would be to ask questions like, tell me a little bit about you know, the things you do right now to advance your, 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 your sales craft as a professional. I ask individuals about their interests outside of work. So if individuals are doing things that I would say are curiosity-based, like maybe doing some additional learning, learning a language, doing an MBA, doing anything that's about the absorption of more knowledge, that would maybe imply a curious personality. During our interviews as well, we do a role play, which I know a lot of people don't like. Some people do, some people don't. But I think there's a lot you can take from how individuals 
take the very limited information they're given and, and do something with it in terms of their critical thinking ability, analytical ability, curiosity. I do think there's a lot you can take from, a, from an interview in terms of curiosity. Funnily enough, that the, the trait that I find hardest to assess is more so will to win. Because I feel like salespeople, everybody knows the importance of communicating and coming across as driven. And everyone says the right thing. Actually, un- understanding that and getting underneath that is, is hard. So, yeah, I'll be interested in, in, in folks' perspectives on that. I mentioned this on the podcast. I have a big smile on my face because I mentioned this on the podcast before. I mean, I do th- obviously will to win is critical. Um, we uh, was actually he wouldn't mind that I say that I say this. So our CEO had this theory that it mattered whether when you interviewed salespeople, you asked them the following question: Is it more important to you to win or do you hate to lose? Do you love to win or do you hate to lose? There it is. Do you love to win or do you hate to lose? And he thought there was like a right side of that answer. I forgot what his hypothesis was, but we actually tested it. We we independently asked all of our salespeople that question. And then we stack rank that fight performance. Uh, we found that it didn't matter. What I think it gets at is that, that the one question can't uncover that. And I, I think it's both. It's like, again, another false dichotomy is, yes, I love to win. And yes, I hate to lose. Like, it may be shades, you know, like shades of gray and in, in difference between that. I know that there was a lot of behavioral interviewing types of questions, right? It's like, tell me about a time when you had to be in a come from behind kind of situation, right? So, yeah. I think those questions are, are great and it gives you it gives you an insight. But I think we're touching on a really a really interesting topic here and a, a big, big focus actually for a lot of the people I speak with who are in sales, clients, even within the company I work for, is this whole idea of the great resignation and the fact that more and more people are, are leaving their jobs and more and more people are moving into their jobs. And I think this this ability to attract talent and screen for good talent is a, probably a bigger issue today in November 2021 than it has been in many, many years in corporate sales. I second the motion on attracting for talent. I, I think as I've seen the most successful sales leaders, especially the ones who you know progress their way up to CRO, almost the number one thing that they have is a network of people to hire, right? I mean, you often will see a CRO come into a new organization and then droves of their, and they're, they're honoring their non-solicitation you know, agreements, but droves of people approach them and say, hey, I'd love to come continue to work for you and in your organization. So that talent magnet thing is, in, is incredibly important. I'm not, a, I'm not a CRO, nor do I have any aspirations to be one again, but I keep a list of the top salespeople and top sales leaders, which is actually one of the reasons I did this podcast, right? It's actually why you're here is I reached out to on LinkedIn and I said, who are the top sales leaders you know? And someone recommended for you to be on. So now you're, you're on my list. But you probably would have been anyway uh, if I were otherwise screening because... It's very rare to find someone who has been at a place for eight years. Well, I wanted to pivot over to another topic, which is AI. So what if I wasn't drinking the Kool-Aid? What if I were skeptical about AI and sales? How would you address the AI skeptic? I think if there, if there were, and there certainly were, the pandemic has, has hit a lot of them. Pre the pandemic, there was still a lot of, well, people buy from people, you know, there's no substitute for a good salesperson, which is still true to a, to a large degree. But I think it was it was being said with more of a a traditional old school old school thought. Whereas now, I think, given that we're all virtual, given that we have less physical proximity to the customer, given all the data that's being produced now from not just Gartner but the likes of LinkedIn, Corn Ferry, all of these organisations, serious decisions, it's all pointing to a reality which is buyers would prefer and want to complete as much of the process 
as they can, independent of a salesperson. And that's consistent with what we all see in our individual lives as consumers. You know, we don't necessarily need to order from a, a phone anymore. We can order food to our house, etc. So this idea of a digital automated, I'll say buying experience as opposed to sales experience, I think is just the reality and the future uh, and the present of B2B sales. I think the interesting question, Jeremy, is what does that then mean for salespeople? Because some would say this is the, the death of sales. I'm personally not of that opinion, but I do believe that, that sellers and salespeople need to evolve. I guess there's augmentation precedes complete, you know, completely artificial intelligence, right? Augmented intelligence precedes artificial intelligence. What facets of the B2B sales process, you know, not for people who are selling sub $5,000, sub $10,000, but maybe like the 10 to 100,000 or 10 to multi hundred thousand dollar range. Like what, what facets do you, are you hearing from your customers are places where they're looking to implement AI to, to streamline the sales process? I think there's a lot of focus at the moment on predictive analytics, giving customers what they need before they need it or before they even know they need it. One of the big focuses at the moment for, for, for many individuals and CSOs I speak with in my personal network is this idea of, look, we need to understand the customer buying journey in a different way. Um, and that's an old concept. I don't think there's anything new about that. But I think what's new about the discussion now is understanding the customer buyer journey is a precursor to then understanding what information, insights, tools do I need to push to my customer proactively to support them in their buying jobs and support them in their buying job completion, which is a big, big focus. So given the variance of, of what's sold today, I don't know that I can say now this aspect can be automated versus this aspect can't. But I think what I, what I can say is, given that the buying journey is becoming more complicated and more complex, there is a huge opportunity, I think, for sales organizations to push information and tooling to the customer to actually help them outside of this, the sales channel. The other big um, theme we're hearing, Jeremy, a lot is asynchronous buying. So trying to get time in executives' diaries seems harder today than it did when I started in sales 15 years ago, or even 10 years ago, or even five years ago. And this idea that actually a sales process is just a linear set of sales conversations with the sales rep, I think is a massive thing that's being disrupted. When you consider the fact that they're buying asynchronously, and they're doing a lot of things outside of the direct sales discussion, then AI is your opportunity more than a salesperson to actually impact and affect and influence those things. Because again, it's about pushing information to the customer when they need it, as opposed to driving or forcing a sales interaction when you need it. I had not heard the term uh, asynchronous buying. Where my head, and you know, I could probably use some clarification, I'm, fascinated, I'm fascinated. Uh, where my head went was, you know, our IT team recently notified us of a new feature in Slack, which I have not tried yet, but it's basically rather than leave a, a text message, I think I can leave a video message for somebody and they can kind of respond and comment on the video. I mean, it's just a, maybe a different mode of communication. But what, where, I, where my mind went was it's sort of like, okay, rather than hop on a call for disco, hop on a call for demo, hop on a call for whatever, right? So maybe those things can be done. Well, tell, me, tell me how, like, what would asynchronous discovery and or demo look like? Yeah, so a couple of things. That feature is really cool, by the way, and a lot of companies are using it. Teams have brought about the same thing. Asynchronous would be, so we know about consensus decision-making and B2B sales. Very, very rarely are we selling to the same person. The complexity of organizing demos with 
groups of individuals or big individuals can be really, really great to the point where they often don't happen or they happen far, far later than we would want them to. And the momentum behind the purchase stalls. So an asynchronous version of that would be to say, I'm going to set up a Teams channel or a Slack channel. You're my CIO, Jeremy. I'd like you to invite any stakeholder that you think is relevant or pertinent to this purchase that you're about to make. What I'm going to do is I'm going to post a seven minute or 10 minute, because it can't be too long, video demo onto this Slack channel, which I'm going to invite you to view and listen to in your own time, right? In the same way that you would do a YouTube video or a WhatsApp message, or frankly, most of the ways that we communicate today. And if you've got any questions, feel free to pop it in the group and I'll respond as and when I can. So I think that is asynchronous communication, asynchronous selling. It's also, I'd imagine, a better experience for the buyer because it's taking the pressure off the single point in time interaction and enabling them to consume information as and when they want it, which is actually not only more effective, but I think differentiated from the way that most sellers are selling today, which is still, can we put half an hour in the diary this week, next week, et cetera. I think it's fascinating. It also allows them to watch it to X speed, which I which I routinely do. So many of the questions also I think that are asked back and forth are ones that will be covered in the material, right? So we we've adopted we we hired a new chief product officer, I don't know, six plus months ago and sh- and she brought in a practice that Amazon uses where you sort of you get into a meeting and then you just for the first ten minutes you read a document, right? And it's it's not even PowerPoint. It's like a you know Google Doc or whatever Word, what have you. And you comment in the doc, right? So there's this forcing mechanism which gets people to actually sort of do the thing. But you read the entire narrative before you start asking questions. And you can put questions obviously into the into the doc, but some of those will will ultimately get resolved. So I, I mean, I see the great value in that. One concern I would have, I'm, I always try to find like what's the objection. Like maybe I have two objections. One is. In that situation I described where we actually are in a meeting and we read the doc together, like you're asynchronously selling, objection one is basically, what's the forcing mechanism to ensure someone actually reads the doc? And then I guess I hate asking people multiple questions so I can, I can pull them back out again, but, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. The second objection that's in my mind is almost every sale and almost every industry is competitive. And if I'm trying to asynchronously sell and, and my competitor is caring enough to take the time to meet face-to-face with you, maybe that builds more trust of the competitor who's not asynchronously selling. Yeah, so the two two good objections, and I'll start with the second one first. I think what most of the data is showing is that buyers don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time with salespeople. So that traditional salesperson who's caring, who wants to meet the customer, who wants to spend time with them, Firstly, there's less opportunity to do that physically because we're in a different world, the pandemic. Um, But secondly, buyer preferences have changed. Um, And there's a range of data that shows that actually they would probably probably prefer to complete as much of the purchase as they can independently. So that is just a a momentum and a fact and a reality of selling that I think sellers need to to go with. And asynchronous is is a differentiated way of doing that. You have to remind me of your first question. Sorry. Oh, yeah, no, that's the problem with multiple questions. I can never remember more than the first. So the second one, which you just addressed, was basically that there's a, there's a trust issue. If you could ask buyers, and they, and they were honest, they, they would tell you, like, yeah, I prefer an asynchronous versus a synchronous. The first part of the question, though, was about ensuring that they actually watch the demo because they're otherwise busy. They don't think about it. You know, they're more in email, I guess, probably than they are in. So, so two things that come to mind, Jeremy, are one, I don't think that I or or anybody would suggest that you can run an end-to-end sales cycle completely asynchronously. There still is a place for the time and place meeting. 
I think the point that I would make is that you need to you need to augment. Firstly, there's less opportunity for those time and place meetings now because of all the buyer preferences that we're seeing. So you need to augment that with asynchronous selling. There is that nervous element though, and I, I grew up in sales where it's like, you know what, if I'm in the discussion, I'm in control. I can force a second meeting. I can make them do the stuff. I can. But I also think there's a huge opportunity from a forecasting perspective, going back to your original work that you're doing right now of, if somebody is interested and engaged, they'll do the stuff. And actually, if they're not doing that, that might actually be an indication of where they are in their buying process and their propensity to actually move forward. Asynchronous selling is actually a really useful way of figuring out who in my pipeline is really motivated to move forward with this change versus not, which is a different lens that I think a, a lot of organizations. I, I agree with you. It's, it's if the prospect is doing work, then they are engaged. So it is, it is a test of that. And it does absolutely increase your, your forecast accuracy. It also made me think, right, there was, there, there was a wave of software companies a while back that they were deal room software companies. And maybe their time was just too early. Like maybe now we are in the era of the deal room with a higher degree of sophistication, whether that is a separate piece of software or whether that's a, just in Teams or Slack is, I guess, you know, the ultimate question of the day. Well, one last question uh, before we wrap. I'm curious, you know, there, there has been a lot of kind of workflow tools that have been created for SDRs, for inside salespeople. You know, there's lots of workflow tools for revenue operations as well, right? They've got, you know, forecasting systems and so on. One area I started to think about yesterday um, is what about workflow for first-line managers? I'm curious, as you sort of think about your world, could you conceive of, uh, of a world where you, you sort of had a tool that helped you, a singular tool that helped you with, with all the different things you have to do? Because the, the job is so varied, right? You're hiring, you're coaching, you're you're uh, reviewing opportunities, you're forecasting, right? Like imagine all that sat in one place. Is that, is that a too sci-fi or do you think that's a near future? I don't know how near or far it is, but it's certainly needed because the first line sales manager role is probably the most difficult role in the company. And you're completely right. As a manager, you're your sales manager, but you're also sometimes HR. You're occasionally marketing, you're occasionally finance, you're occasionally legal. You're stretched in a lot of different directions and having an opportunity to see that in one place. And I think anything, honestly, Jeremy, that simplifies the job is going to be of, of betterment for all sales managers everywhere. And I also think there's a big piece as well. I mean, people generally view sales management as or first line sales management as a necessary step to get to where they want to go eventually because of the difficulty of the job. I think it's got the potential to be so much more than that in terms of your ability to coach, innovate, lead, inspire people before it can come that become that i think we need to find a way of just simplifying and consolidating the job of the sales manager so it starts to become more manageable for the for the for the individual and i think a workflow tool any type of software tool will be a fantastic way of doing that as you're saying that i'm also thinking you know people live in live in their calendars right because time is is like the one one of the precious commodities that you cannot uh, you know, you cannot alter. So it's almost as if um, if we put the, our topics together from today, if you put AI and calendar together, maybe the AI identifies what are the key things you need to do as a manager. Like you need, well, here's the ultimate, right? It's like, it's predicting that one of your reps is going to leave in three months because it knows, right? The signals of disengagement. And it's predicted that there's nothing you can do. Like you, and it probably gives you some tasks to re-engage that person. So it tells you go backfill now so you don't have an open territory and like stick that on your calendar. That would be kind of, that would be fascinating, right? And, and uh, maybe a little minority report, but... It would be, yeah. 
I think there's already a change in the profile of salesperson that I think there are more and more analytics going into frontline teller roles. As AI comes in more, data comes in more, I think you're going to see a lot more of that profile. And I think the future of, of sales is going to be very, very different, isn't it, to the reality that, that you and I have grown up in. But I think in many ways better and sometimes more interesting, more stimulating as well than, than what, was, what was before. I think a brilliant, optimistic uh, ending, and I, I agree with you as well. So Nathan, such a pleasure having you on, and, and congratulations on your success at, at Gartner and your continued success there. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed the experience. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.